Sarah Nissima, Allen Ginsberg, Peggy Guggenheim and Ezra Pound in Venice. Chapter 1, Rio del Greco, October 1967. The poet awoke, waved slapping the canal, with cries and curses from the working men, busy slipping bags from barge to hotel. He'd arrived late the night before in rain, drank rotgut red with the night porter and smoked hash to conjure magic with his pen. His challenge was to craft a cleansing chant to levitate the Pentagon up high, an exorgasm from the hip Hierophant. From Anubis to Zeus he bound the sky, a mystic materialistic formula, four elements, five sides, the circle pie, American as apple pie mantra to break the karmic wheel of Nam slaughter, the fugs stand by to spread this chant afar. Morning now, looking along the water, buildings at strange angles to each other, some confusion between bricks and mortar as though builders disagreed, or rather, they did not care which way was up or down. The poet had thoughts of his crazy mother. The workers in their blue boiler suits brown, water heaving but steady in their boat, the stance of men fated never to drown, pulling at ropes as the concierge hoped cargo would kiss the piano nobile. The scene now lifted to a higher note. In rays of sun, the poet began to feel the lack of linearity was not his fault this time, but a different deal. It wasn't the acid or yage or pot, or even the hash from the night before. It was bacteria at work and rot, as generations of flood tides made law, when wooden piles on which buildings rested shifted to a formula at their core. And each edifice was itself tested. The poet sniffed life, fresh in the salty air, and smelt the force of history vested. Today held an opportunity rare to reclaim poetry and make it whole by facing the lost master in his lair, to break his silence and restore his goal, to remind him how reverberations found in the skin of our ears touch our soul and change the fate of people and nations. The mad old man had certainly been wrong, but his best works are sheer exaltations and only he knew how to end his song. Chapter 2, Towards the Grand Canal, July 1957. The art collector was in a speedboat, scudding across the waves of the lagoon, her retainer at the wheel turned to dote. The princess will see her palazzo soon. Not a princess, just a woman of note, she said, but her man sang another tune. Owning the veneer di Leone made her, for him, as good as royalty. While the palace was low and unfinished, she was a patron of the finer arts, with her reputation undiminished for acquiring bargains than breaking hearts. Escape the Nazis, art unrelinquished, prices for her darlings now off the charts. Her peculiar penny-pinching way made sure she still had the money to play. She'd been big time in London and New York, bought Picasso, Duchamp and Surrealism, before the war and let the critics gawk. Her promotional force made modernism popular. Then she found Jackson Pollock and conjured up abstract expressionism. When post-war Venice needed something great, her paintings gave the Biennale weight. The Palazzo was now haven and home, surrounded by gardens light and airy. With dogs and daughters, she's never alone, and her social life was seen to vary. With visitors from the US and Rome, she could argue all night, be contrary. Tonight's adventure, to visit the garrets and amuse herself 
with wild young poets. Chapter 3, Around Dorsoduro, October 1967. The old fascist saunters along the street, near salute, looking towards Judeca, a Yankee in the poetic elite, self-styled sage and serious character, now seen as a charlatan and wrecker. He's made his mark, making language more real, forcing mere words to mean as well as feel. He sorted out T.S. Eliot's style, used contacts to get James Joyce into print, helped Hemingway before he made his pile, polished up old Chinese texts for a stint. He had a career with burnish and glint. His plan was a poetic portmanteau, canny construction, canto on canto. With war and wealth and culture as his themes, his goal was to use poetic technique to help improve the ends of human schemes. Following Homer and Dante to seek, what made society so strong or weak? But economics became his downfall and slowly sent his life into a sprawl. Not caring if he became a crackpot, he attacked the power of usury, where most were slaves while bankers ran a plot. In 24, he moved to Italy and under the sway of Mussolini, ended up complaining of Jewish banks and joined the ranks of anti-Semite cranks. During the war, he spread his invective, broadcast radio to suit the season. His rabid rants were barely effective, but at war's end, he was charged with treason. Weeks in a cage led to a loss of reason. His lawyer put him in his own phylum, and he spent 12 years in an asylum. The cantos grow and flourish in this time, troubling governments by winning awards, riddling with reason, avoiding most rhyme. His poetry resounds to modern chords. His voice rises from under the floorboards. So many friends come to his defence that the government rethinks its dire diktat. An old man descending into madness is no threat, so he does not need to stay. But his release brings on greater sadness. Once free, he finds he has little to say. Passing Peggy's Palazzo on his way to lunch, he feels under observation. Paranoid plot or not, consternation. Chapter 4, Rapallo, 1924. Ezra and Peggy often played tennis when they both ended up in Rapallo's embrace, pegged driven by rain from Venice, as Ezra wrote Malatesta's cantos. She joined his tennis club and played most days. She found Ezra an expert at the game, but a good stroke prompted a creepy craze. He crowed like a rooster in love with fame. No anti-Semitic rant is noted, though Mussolini was by now in charge. Was there something in how Ezra gloated? that foreshadows his crimes both small and large. He was already in a fascist state. The dice are rolling. He awaits his fate. Chapter 5. Near San Samuel Campo, Venice, July 1957. Alan and Peter had been travelling through Spain and France after leaving Tangier, where hash too strong had prompted paranoid fear and speed started burrows unravelling. They went to Venice for art bedazzling and settled in with Alan Anson near the Grand Canal Ginsburg set up as seer. The trial of Howell prompted a trammelling. Advice to the poet is do not return. The government is seeking a scapegoat. They would judge his presence provocation. They are in the mood to see some books burn. Bushwhacking a bearded Bolshevik poet would be a big media sensation. 
Anson, multilingual polymath scribe, well established in the Venetian scene as a flamboyant rake and libertine, thought it time to call together the tribe for a soiree so his friends might imbibe the outlaw poet and his outre sheen in the presence of the Venetian queen. Peggy Guggenheim would surely subscribe. The party plan has the desired effect. Ginsburg's spirits rise up as he prepares to add his name to Guggenheim's salon. This would be the revenge of the reject. While the cops waited stateside, instead he dares to move into the upper echelon. The evening comes, cognoscenti gather. Anson's flat is crowded, the people drink. Peggy arrives and gives Ginsburg a wink. He starts out slow with his usual mantra, but the close room soon has him a lather of sweat. The excitement builds to the brink. Alan needs a towel and too quick to think, Peter throws it across open slather. The towel moves along an arc of its own and lands on Peggy Guggenheim's quaffed head. First there is silence and an awkward pause. Then she emits an unworldly low moan that becomes the scream of the living dead while wags rush to provide scattered applause. Peggy makes a scene out of proportion, shares her displeasure and storms out the door, for Peter broke the fundamental law, treat a princess with due care and caution. A contrite Ginsburg practiced contortion. He wrote to Peggy admitting his flaw. He'd not been to a great salon before, and he craved the thrill without distortion. He hoped for cocktails on the Grand Canal, the poets surrounded by famous ladies, with surrealists, butlers and gondoliers. But no invite came to Peggy's cabal. Swearing and drugs put him in with the crazies, and their worlds veer off to different spheres. A few postscripts deserving attention. Alan wrote a poem for his journal, where the invite comes to ends infernal, as do Peggy, her fame and pretension. Greg Corso also deserves a mention. Peggy's own libido, now the colonel. She was not looking for love eternal. He hoped her cash would become his pension. Then Greg was attracted to her daughter, which Peggy took as a grievous insult, and he wasn't welcome at the palazzo. Greg could have fought her, but there'd be slaughter, and he looked for a more pleasant result, penning poetry with a prosecco. Chapter 6, Spolito Arts Festival, 7th July 1967. Celebrated cultural collector Carlo Minotti was director of the Festival dei Due Mondi, iconoclasts he brought together fondly. From the cutting edge of dance, opera, music and experimental theatre, into a feast of radical ideas, exploring new ways the whole world coheres. Buckminster Fuller did geodesics, built a dome, talked rational mechanics, and played out his own ballet of the mind. There were poets, too, of the troublesome kind. Alan sees Ezra in the audience at the Don Giovanni performance. At the first interval, Alan can't help. He goes up and introduces himself. Things are immediately very strange. Conversation is not on, out of range. As Ezra is silent, he will not talk. There's nothing to say to this hairy hulk. In Ezra's eyes, Alan sees crazy fear. Ezra sees mania, but something clear. Here is a troubadour with a mission. One time, he recalls, he had that vision. Now they're two poets looking at each other, each wondering if they've found a brother. 
Curtain rise, Alan retreats to his seat to be lifted by Mozart's heady beat and the tale of need to want your redemption. Could he find the path for Ezra's exemption from the fascist hell he richly deserved to join the circle for poets reserved, not in heaven or hell, something calmer in the cosmic nuance of Nirvana? Another day Ezra emboldened goes to break his silence and read six cantos from number 3 to 115, this historic moment excites the scene. From sitting on Dogana's step forward to walking dead and the rest cardboard. Ezra re-establishes his own voice, wows the crowd, leaving critics little choice but steer clear of fascist insanity and glory in the man's humanity. There's no surprise Alan's raunchy reading leads to his arrest and then his pleading not guilty to the use of certain words. Alan basks and resolves to go forwards, his three hours in frank interrogation, an opportunity for oration. The festival is staunch, but the top cop gets five years of fame, then lets the case drop. Chapter 7, Flanathony, Wales, 29th of July, 1967. Alan goes from Italy to London for fun at the Liberation Congress leaving pressing translation work undone to expand planetary consciousness. Greg Bateson's talk on the greenhouse effect leads to a Welsh valley quiet and placid and has for Alan an impact direct when a few days later he drops acid, sees green shimmers, a grassy mandala and finds the interconnectivity with mauve atoms in the wind's Kabbalah. In all complexity, it's brevity and the cosmic duty of the poet to find the fuse in each ear and grow it. Chapter 8, Rapallo, 23rd of September 1967. Back in Italy, doing translation with Fernando Pavano is a drudge, but then comes a luncheon invitation from Ezra's constant consort, Olga Rudge. From stony silence, Ezra will not budge, except for advice that they wash their hands, and then much later declining to judge the Vichy perspectives in Paul Moran's stories that, with anti-Semitic strands, Ezra translated as open all night. When Alan chants sutras and om expands, Pavano says he may give pound a fright, but Rudge says Ezra would not hang around if he was not happy to hear the sound. After lunch, they drive to Portofino and stroll the foreshore along the jetty. Alan with questions Ezra does not know, then they stop at La Grita for coffee. Passers-by look at the disparity. Ezra sits in proud silence for an hour. Fine hat, walking stick and suit most natty, giving a gleam or perhaps a glower, while the bearded man who needs a shower puts all his cheek and chutzpah on display and brings up drugs as the meeting goes sour. Did Ezra ever try hash in his day? Ezra's eyes glaze as he shakes his old head, so Alan shuts up. His project looks dead. Chapter 9, Calcureni near Rio Fenaci, Venice, October 1967. Despite Ezra's quiescence, Alan tries his quest again. Olga says, Venice, come to our home alone for less strain. He brings the Beatles Sergeant Peppers, Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, to show the flow of chance and chance, the strong poetic bond. They drink some wine, 
Alan quietly smokes some pot with coffee and asks, Old man, how old are you? Ezra answers promptly. I'm 82 in days, his only words that meeting. Alan tries, but clear communication remains fleeting. After dinner, Alan plays Ezra a couple of tracks, going over the words slowly to explore the fine cracks where poetry moves between and beyond generations, from master to acolyte to broader populations. Alan recites Dylan's sad-eyed Lady of the Lowlands to show Ezra his troubadour vision is in good hands. The words ring true and clear, the song leaves the room vibrating, the planets pulsating and the galaxy gyrating. There's an economy of vibes that can lift the Pentagon as the cantos sought to change the world and make war be gone. Ezra knows crazy and finding it now stares off afar. Alan gets the point and goes to get drunk at Harry's bar. Chapter 10, Fondamenta Venere de Leone, Venice, October 1967. As Alan returns to Dorsoduro, he's whacked wandering through San Vio Square, so winds up outside Peggy's Palazzo, awed by the forces that brought him to there. She knows Ezra and offers insights rare. He rings the bell, the retainer appears, concerned to be confronted by a bear. He makes Alan wait while the princess clears Passage for the crazed loon. Despite his fears, the retainer ushers the drunk poet in. The dogs are skylarking as Alan nears. King of May, she sparkles. Where have you been? I'm on a mission to make Posey whole, and that may also save Ezra Pound's soul. Peggy laughs out loud and picks up a dog. Why save the old fascist from his damned work? Alan agrees. He's adrift in a fog, but everyone's holy, even a jerk. And while he's silent, the fascists can smirk. The challenge is, and from this I won't balk, to set him free to confront his inner quirk. The question is how to get him to talk. Peggy thinks and says, his ego is huge. Ask details about his big dick poem. The talk will come in a mighty deluge. He's got answers. Be kind and he'll show them. Peggy sits back, happy her work now done. How's that bastard Corso? He was quite fun. Chapter 11, Pensiona alla Salute de Chichi, Venice, 28th October, 1967. Alan remains in Venice for more than a fortnight, moves in near Ezra, greets him walking by the Rio, takes him to Vivaldi one night and is quite forthright with textual questions pursued with brio. Where are the soap-smooth stone posts at San Vio? I went and looked. And they're all rough. It used to be like that, Ezra shrugs, so it goes. Alan is ready with more stuff. What of the Miracoli church in the cantos? There's no font with all the gold domes of San Marcos. Ezra answers, yes, when the font was filled, the domes were reflections, now they've changed it. Alan is thrilled, his forensic style is skilled. The house that was of Don Carlos, you've arranged it. Why use this form of words? Has he now exchanged it? Don Carlos, the pretender, had a mansion near. As the Bourbon claimant to the Spanish throne, it was his house, but rents could drift arrear. Alan sees they're moving into a conversational zone where a more productive exchange can be grown. They meet for lunch with friends at Pensioni CC. Alan tells Ezra of his Blake hallucinations. 
Like the primo platy, the topic is meaty. He weaves in many pertinent permutations, then asks if there is any sense in his explanations. Yes, says Ezra, but my own work makes no sense. Bunting said the cantos had too little presentation and far too much reference. The practical facts that were his infatuation had obscured the crux of his epic creation. Then the taciturn old poet recounts his fall. My writing, stupid and ignorant all the way. All double talk, a mess, it's hard to write at all. I found after 70 years to the day, I was not a lunatic but a moron, his price to pay. Any good I've done has been an accident, spoiled by stupid and irrelevant things. My poor preoccupations led to bad intent. I should have read more poetry for the knowledge it brings. It's all tags and patches that never really sings. But my worst mistake was the stupid suburban prejudice of anti-Semitism. That's your fuck up, Alan agrees. He's no Cupid. But you can move on. That's the teaching of Buddhism. Like Prospero, you can discard your staff and your prism. But you must go on working each day to record the last scenes of your dramatic news. You still have a great deal to say. And after all, you have nothing to lose. For all humanity, finish the cantos. Alan tells Ezra, you've strengthened my perceptions with practical words as stepping stones stressing the power in the skin of our ears, whatever your intentions. Alan asks for Ezra to accept his blessing. I do, says Ezra, then stops confessing. They meet again at Ezra's home on his birthday. Alan asks how the old poet is really doing. Worse than alive is all he has to say. Alan eats birthday cake, feels a sutra brewing, and gives Ezra a final mystic mewing. It's hard to know if Ezra found Alan's concerns clear, but soon after came Canto 116, in which Ezra admitted, I cannot make it go here, but Odysseus came home and Ezra's wisdom came singing, If love be not in the house, there is nothing. Chapter 12, Academia Bridge, Venice, late 1972. When dreams and portents said his time was short, Ezra woke one day with an urge to see the jewel box church of which he had written, Santa Maria de Miracoli. He walks and Venice glitters, he's smitten. He finds Miracoli as he recalled, the glistening marble and the fine carving, light on the mermaid sparkled and enthralled. On his way back, it's late and he's starving. He stops for pasta with sardines and nuts. A carafe of wine leaves him unsteady. He exits the bar just before it shuts. So on the bridge, he is not quite ready when Peggy Guggenheim comes into sight. Hello, Ezra, she says with a sunny smile, resplendent in furs and florals too bright. Hello, Peggy, it's been quite a while. I've missed you when I've been around to see your sublime sculptures of Bernucci's birds. They do more than I could in poetry. The skin of our eyes tells us more than words. Peggy says, then looks Ezra in the face. Just tell me how you are in yourself. He struck her concern is not out of place. He tells the truth about his failing health. I'll soon break free of this cosmos, you know. I won't be bathing in the garden light, but going down to greet Hades below. Peggy shrugs and says, you had such clear sight, but usury put you out of focus, made you a jubating crank by taking, symptom for cause, 
that's human avarice. Ezra grasps the sense Peggy is making. While my poem never got to paradise, utopias tend to end in disaster, and I'm glad I took that hippie's advice. To do each day what I could but master, I've lived my life and taken my chances, Ezra says softly as he grabs her sleeve. My one regret, we didn't have more dances. Epilogue. A month later, Ezra takes his last leave. An intestinal block made him unwell. Four gondoliers in black steer him over the lagoon to Isola San Michel. Peggy persisted for seven years more. She sparkled controversy to her ends. Her ashes buried in the palazzo's own grounds, surrounded by her dear dog friends. And Alan drank many more espressos. In the quarter of century he had heft, as the world's conscience and man of letters, his passing left Homer's calling bereft. Thank Venice to whom we are all debtors, for giving safe harbour to free thinkers, from sarpy to pound and the ages through, the lagoon protected wordy tinkers. The Serenissima fostered a slew of new ideas, movements and contentions. From east to west and the whole world across, it's still the place to find new dimensions. So will time see Ezra's workers dross, ravings of a crackpot anti-Semite? Or will the cantos rise to Ginsburg's hope, a practical path from dark into light? There is no neat nirvana in the scope where Peg has Ezra and Alan for tea. The answer is in the skin of our ears and how it helps us make more poetry.